June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and today on Face the Nation, alarming new intelligence reports about Russian plans for a large-scale invasion of Ukraine and a stunning political split in the Republican Party as former Vice President Mike Pence rebukes President Trump 13 months after the January 6th attack on the Capitol. President Trump said I had the right to overturn the election. President Trump is wrong. Then the Beijing Winter Olympics are officially underway, but behind their elaborate effort to display international unity during the pandemic, China's leaders are under fire for their human rights abuses, cyber attacks, economic subterfuge, and their suspect alliances. Does the timing of the Olympics play into Russian President Vladimir Putin's plans for Ukraine? We'll talk with Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio and the number two at Treasury, Deputy Secretary Wally Adeyemo. He's a key architect of President Biden's sanctions policies. Former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster will also join us and we'll have a report on the war games going on in and just outside of Ukraine. And America marks yet another COVID milestone. As our death toll reaches 900,000, we'll talk with a former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Plus, our conversation with parents about how the pandemic has taken its toll on their children. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. There is an overwhelming amount of news this morning, especially on the international front. But we want to start with two extraordinary developments that threaten to further divide the Republican Party and impact our democracy. Late Friday, Republican National Committee members voted to censure Representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger for their work on the committee investigating the attack on the Capitol and the attempt to overturn election results, saying the two were part of a, quote, Democrat-led persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse. The former vice president, Mike Pence, rebuked President Trump's insistence that Pence could have rejected the Electoral College results on January 6th. I had no right to overturn the election. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. And frankly, there is no idea more un-American than the notion that any one person could choose the American president. Under the Constitution, I had no right to change the outcome of our election. We begin with Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio. He is in Miami. Senator, we invited you to come on this show to talk about China. I want to get there, but I have to start here. Do you agree with Mike Pence? Well, if uh, President Trump runs for re-election, I believe he would defeat Joe Biden. And I don't want Kamala Harris to have the power as vice president to overturn that election. And I don't, that's, 
the same thing that I concluded back in January of 2021. So Donald Trump was wrong? Well, as I said, I just don't think a vice president has that power because if the vice right. president has that power, Donald Trump would defeat Joe Biden in four years or two years, and then Kamala Harris can decide not to overturn the election. I don't want to wind up there. Right. So, yes. So this appears a turning point for the party, though. Does the RNC speak for you when it says that this is a Democrat-led persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse? Was January 6th legitimate political discourse? Well, anybody who committed crimes on January 6th should be prosecuted. If you entered the Capitol and you committed acts of violence and you were there to hurt people, you should be prosecuted, and they are being prosecuted. But the January 6th commission is not the place to do that. That's what prosecutors are supposed to do. This commission is a partisan scam. They're going after, they're, the, the purpose of that commission is to try to embarrass and smear and, and harass as many That's Republicans as they can get their hands on. That's what you believe your two Republican colleagues are doing? Liz Cheney well, I believe that's what commission is doing. Well, let me tell you, I know that's what that commission is doing because they're focused well beyond January 6th. There are people, for example, like an, an older member of the RNC whose husband just died, and she wasn't even in Washington on January 6th. But that's not what the she, censure said. She signed said. some papers. She wasn't even in Washington on January 6th. She can't afford to lawyer up, and she's being harassed by this commission. This commission is nothing but a partisan tool designed to go out and smear and attack and get their hands on as many people as they can including people that weren't in Washington on January 6th. Okay, sounds like you say they do speak for you. Let's get to uh, China. Well, I know I told you where I stand on that commission. I think that commission is a scam. I think it's a complete partisan scam. And I think anyone who committed a crime on January 6th should be prosecuted and if convicted, put in jail. I do not believe that we need a congressional committee to harass Americans that weren't even in Washington on January 6th, were not in favor of what happened on that day, have condemned what happened on that day, but they want to smear them anyway. I'm against that, yes. Sources tell CBS News that Vladimir Putin has assembled about 70 percent of the forces that he would need for a full invasion of Ukraine. Uh, he could take the capital within just two days. As many as five million refugees would be driven into surrounding countries. He could do all this within 10 to 15 days of where we are right now. What impact do you see this happening having on the United States? Well, the impact would begin by destabilizing Europe. This is the single greatest threat Europe has faced since the 1940s. Um, and, and, um, and as you've pointed out, the refugee uh, surge would be one. But I think this would have a global impact because we're now all of a sudden once again living in a world in which countries and leaders can decide that something belongs to them and they go in and take it by force. And there are plenty, there are multiple countries in Europe that have complaints about treaties that were signed over 100 years ago in some cases. We know how China claims its claims on Taiwan. It has territorial disputes with India on its borders. So if we now live in a world where you can just go in and take a country because you claim it or parts of it belong to you and you can do so militarily, well, we've entered a, a, a very dangerous period in human history once again. So I think it has enormous consequences if, if and when that happens. President Biden has made clear he won't use U.S. combat troops. He will use sanctions, financial warfare. Um, given how uh, Xi Jinping, the president of China, embraced Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, just in the past few days, do you see this as a way that these two countries can just blunt the impact uh, of U.S. sanctions? I want it to be clear. There, there is no U.S. combat role in Ukraine. There isn't going to be one. Right. I don't know of anyone who supports it, not even the Ukrainians. 
That said, I think that Vladimir Putin has to pay a high price if he does this. Not just for him to pay the price, but for other countries to see the high price of doing that kind of thing and other leaders. And I think that price should be, A, his economy should be crippled and hurt badly. That will require unity, not just from the Europeans, but other countries around the world, but beginning with the Europeans. If they're not going to impose those sanctions and stick with them, then, that, then over, over time he will be able to blunt it. But the other thing that's going to happen is the easiest part for him is going to be the invasion. The harder part is going to be the occupation. Ukrainians are not going to welcome him with roses. He's going to have to explain to Russian mothers why their sons keep coming home injured, killed, and maimed from this occupation. If any country on earth knows how painful and difficult it is to occupy a country that doesn't want you there for a substantial period of time, it should be us with our experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. As I mentioned, this alliance between Russia and China seems to be building on China itself. Uh, more than one million Muslim, mostly Muslim minorities are in detention camps in China. According to the State Department, they're subject to forced sterilization, abortions, rape, torture, forced labor, restrictions on prayer, restrictions on movement. I know you've been working to try to restrict imports made by forced labor inside these camps. But is it really possible to clean up the supply chain? Because China is such an economic behemoth here. Well, a couple things that we need to do. The first is we need to do this no matter what, because this country has to be a country that makes things again. If we've learned anything over the last couple years is that there, you have to have a manufacturing and industrial capability and you can't be dependent on foreign supply chains entirely, especially those located in a place like China. Because of a pandemic, a war, or out of leverage against us, you could be cut off and create an economic crisis. But the second is, we've passed that bill. We passed a bill that says if something is made in a factory in that part of China, we are going to presume it's made by slave labor and not allow it into the country mm -hmm. unless companies can prove that that's not the case. Which companies are the worst abusers on this front? I think there are many American companies like Nike and others that have definitely benefited from the supply chain that's located in that part of the world. Um, and, and, uh, and the list could be even more extensive than that because there are people that are buying from subcontractors. Many of them know they're sourcing material from that area. But, uh, but they uh, continue to or continue to allow it to happen. And so we saw the lobbying efforts of Apple, of Nike, and, other, uh, and, and others just represented through chambers, arguing that this would raise the cost for consumers. But ultimately, it's slave labor. It, yeah. it's, and, and it's a horrific genocide. Well, and Tesla just opened a showroom in the province where these camps are located. I mean, American businesses still seem to be more than willing to try to tap the Chinese market. Well, it's one of the largest markets, the second largest market in the world, and in some industries, the largest. I understand the profit motive behind it, and that's fine. But, but I understand that with their view of it, that's, that's their agenda. But our agenda has to be the national interest of the United States, not to mention what's right or wrong in, in the world. I want to ask you about what's happening on U.S. soil. The FBI director, Chris Wray, gave a pretty extraordinary speech last week saying China and its threat here in the United States is greater than it's ever been before. He said China is actually targeting people inside the U.S. Listen to this. We're seeing the Chinese government resort to blackmail, threats of violence, stalking, and kidnappings. They've actually engaged criminal organizations in the U.S., offering them bounties in hopes of successfully taking targets back to China. How do you combat that kind of espionage on U.S. soil without the United States itself becoming a surveillance state? Well, it's difficult. It's not easy. And it's a new threat that we face. But what he's pointing to there is the example of a Uyghur. Let's say there's a Uyghur in the United States who's involved in speaking out against those abuses that are going on in China. They are trying to lure those people to come back to China. 
And the way they do it is they threaten their family over there, but they might even align themselves with some sort of a triad group or some street gang of the, that nature in order to go and personally try to intimidate these people. They have sent people to this country to do that sort of thing as well, to harass and intimidate. Whether it's the Uyghur issue or general political topics as well, if you're speaking out against China and you're a nas Chinese national or a former Chinese national, you have families back over there. They try to harass you through your family over there and increasingly directly here. And so I think the first step is to sort of reveal it and call it out and do what the director just did. I think the second step is to expel these people. Once we've identified that some agent of influence from China is on U.S. soil going after people living in this country and trying to intimidate them, those people should be immediately expelled from the country, even if they're here under diplomatic cover or in many cases they're here under business cover. But is enough being done on this front? Well, I think there's now a growing awareness on this. This is a new thing that's emerged over the last few years as they've become more and more aggressive about it. So it remains to be seen. I mean, we've got to do more, and I think more needs to be done at the local level. Look, if you go into a local police department in this country and you tell them there's a Chinese agent operating in your community, that's something they've never dealt with before. I don't think there's a lack of willingness to address it. I just think it's something that we don't have a lot of experience addressing it. But we have to, because it's happening and it's real, and every year it gets worse. And can you do it without impacting the rights of Chinese Americans or Chinese nationals who are living here? Yeah, in fact, it's Chinese nationals living here that are being threatened and intimidated. And one of the great threats that exists there is some, many of them are hesitant to come forward and report what's happening to them, to the authorities, because they're specifically told not to do so or their family are going to be harmed. So I think we've got to develop greater trust. All right. Senator Rubio, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Now to the crisis in Ukraine and the increasing signs that Vladimir Putin plans a full-scale invasion. Sources tell CBS News that civilian casualties could go as high as 100,000. Our MTS Tayyip reports from Kyiv. These are the colors of a country preparing for war. The residents of Kharkiv, Ukraine's second largest city, filled the streets with patriotic pride. Most here are Russian-speaking and live close to the border with Russia. But fear of a Vladimir Putin-led invasion has unleashed a new sense of national unity here. At Chernobyl, a city no stranger to disaster, the Ukrainian military ran drills to protect critical infrastructure. While in the capital, Kiev, civilians are being taught how to fight. The Kremlin continues to insist it has no plans to attack. Despite amassing roughly 110,000 battle-ready troops along Ukraine's borders. While at the same time accusing the U.S. of trying to goad it into war. Now, there's no shortage of support for Ukraine, from military hardware to diplomacy, from Washington, the EU, and others. But what happens next all depends on Vladimir Putin. Margaret. MTS Tayyip, thank you. Face the Nation will be back in one minute. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. 
Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wally Adiemo is the Deputy Treasury Secretary of the United States, and he's here with me now. Good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret. As we've been talking about, this latest intelligence shows Russia uh, has all these forces mounted and could launch this large-scale, full-scale invasion. The impact would be huge in terms of refugee crisis and casualties. What would the impact of the global economy be? So, Margaret, I'm, of course, not going to talk about the intelligence, but I want to talk about what we plan to do if Russia were to invade. Um, when we started seeing Russian troops amass near the Ukrainian border, the president asked Secretary Yellen and I to start having conversations with our allies in Europe mm -hmm. to ensure that we would be in a place where we could launch economic sanctions against Russia if they were to invade. We have designed a set of economic sanctions that would take on the Russian financial system, limit President Putin's ability to project power into the future by cutting them off from key technologies and cutting off key elites from the Russian economy. To your question of what would be the impact on the global economy if Russia were to invade, we're already starting to see it. The Russian economy is already suffering from the, from the, from the moment that President Putin started to take these actions. The ruble is having the worst performance of among emerging economies thus far this year. You're looking at their borrowing cost increase. Mm -hmm. And what we would see is we would see Russia's economy suffer if they were to take an action to invade Ukraine. But what would the spillover be if you have a refugee crisis in the middle of Europe, if you have this kind of disruption? Does it spike energy prices? What does it do? So, Mark, one of the things that we have done is we're working very closely with our allies in Europe to make sure that we're in a position to help meet their need for energy. A number of our colleagues have worked closely with them. We're also taking steps to prepare for um, a potential refugee crisis. But the key is the choice belongs to President Putin. He can make the choice of going down the route of diplomacy and dialogue with mm -hmm. the United States and NATO, or he can take the consequences of invasion, which will include severe economic consequences for his economy. But how effective can U.S. and Western sanctions be if Russia is just going to move closer to China, as we're seeing? So, Margaret, I was in the Obama administration in 2014 when we took actions against uh, Russia in response to their invasion of Ukraine. We've learned a great deal of lessons. And what I can tell you is the actions that we would take if Russia were to invade Ukraine this time would be far more significant. Mm -hmm. And it's up to President Putin if he wants to become dependent on China going forward. But what I'll tell you is that China can't give Russia what they don't have. There are critical technologies that Russia is dependent on the United States and our allies on, technologies that Russia, that China does not have access to. Russian elites, who we would cut off from the global financial system, are not putting their money in China. They're putting their money in Europe and in the United States. And those elites, those who are helping President Putin make these decisions, we would cut them and their families off from the global financial system in ways that would limit their ability to do business in the ways they've done it in the past. And that would, by putting pressure on the oligarchs and the elites, as you call them, around Vladimir Putin, you think that would put more pressure on Vladimir Putin than sanctioning him directly? 
We think that the range of actions that we are prepared to take with regard to with the United States and with Europe would have a significant impact on President Putin, on those close to him as well. When you think about it, the reason that we're taking actions with Europe is because while on a daily basis, Russian financial institutions do about $46 billion worth of financial transactions um, around the world. 80% of those transactions are in dollars. So they are connected to the US financial system. Mm -hmm. But their biggest trading partners in Europe, more than $200 billion of trade is with Europe each year. 40% of Russia's trade is with Europe on a regular basis. By the United States and Europe acting together, we put ourselves in a position where we not only would have an impact on the overall Russian economy, but we'd have a direct impact on President Putin, who is tied to the Russian economy. Right. Well, Germany is very tied to the Russian economy. We know the German chancellor is sitting down with President Biden tomorrow. Are they the weakest link in this united front you're trying to forge? And Nord Stream 2 and sanctions, those seem to be inevitable at this point? Margaret, we've worked very closely with the German government. As you know, the new chancellor in Germany used to be the finance ministry, um, where I spent a great deal of time talking to his colleagues, and the Germans have worked with us closely in terms of building the sanctions package we would implement if Russia were to take these actions. They've helped produce ideas that are part of the things that we would implement to that point. What I can say about Nord Stream 2 is that if Russia were to invade Ukraine, Nord Stream 2 would never go online. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to working closely with Germany, we've worked closely with the EU and a divide a, designed a range of sanctions that would have significant impact on the Russian economy. It's important to, while we oppose Nord Stream 2, the key for us is making sure that we take far more significant actions in addition to Nord Stream 2 in order to make sure that the Russian economy suffers the consequences if Russia decides to invade. Mm -hmm. But as I've said, the choice belongs to President Putin. He can choose the path of diplomacy and dialogue or choose a path that leads to the Russian economy suffering not only for tomorrow, but suffering over the long term and limiting his ability to project power into the future. China's. Uh incredibly fast-growing economy. You're 13 months into this presidency. Why don't we have a Biden administration China strategy? It's important to remember that um, China's economy is growing very fast, but China's had a very challenging last year in terms of their economy. And one of the things the president said was that he was going to focus initially on investing in the American economy and mm -hmm. building relationships with our allies, and that succeeded. The U.S. The, economy has grown significantly faster over the last year than any economy in the so world. And so has inflation. So do you need to reconsider the tariffs on China in order to alleviate some of that inflation? So as you know, Margaret, um, inflation is a global challenge. Um, it's not only something that we face in the United States, it's something that Europe faces and the UK faces. And in talking to my allies and partners, the things that they tell me is that they are envious of the fact that we come at this challenge from a position of strength rather than weakness. Last year, as you know, the US economy created 6.6 .6 million yes. jobs, and the economy grew faster than at any point in 40 years. And But we do need to address high prices. It's something that impacts the American people, and the primary responsibility for doing that belongs to the Fed. Mm -hmm. um, we believe the Fed and the Fed's independence and Chairman Powell has laid out a path for addressing this. Right. But the administration's also committed to doing what we need to do to address inflation from helping supply chains. And we've already started to see that um, the backlogs in the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach have come down. Now they're moving at 24, 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. um, we're also starting to also see that um, companies are building up inventories because supply chains have gotten better. And you spoke about the jobs numbers that came out right. um, this month, which were um, 
historically high. But the most important thing to me was also that you saw a number of mm -hmm. Americans who came back into the labor force, which because when I talk to small businesses in the country, or yes. CEOs, the biggest one of the biggest challenges they face is they need employees. Right. So getting it's, more it's people huge, in It's is a huge important. issue we've been following on the program. Thank you very much, Mr. Deputy Secretary, for your time today. We'll be right back. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cash back really adds up. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that can enthrall you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped, like Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie. With exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances, Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. With the Olympic Games underway in Beijing, Elizabeth Palmer has a look at how the Chinese Communist Party has tightened control and expanded surveillance, all under the guise of public health. On Friday, a Dutch journalist was forced aside by a security guard, live on air, after apparently straying to the edge of the approved zone. The IOC says it was an isolated incident, but it does show that rules in Beijing are strict. They kicked in as soon as athletes and officials landed. They were COVID tested and then sealed into what's meant to be an infection-free bubble with special buses to take them around. Athletes are tested twice a day, also had to download a monitoring app. The Chinese government has stuck to its zero COVID policy, placing millions of people under strict lockdowns, even in modest outbreaks. It reports a death toll of just over 4,500 people. But in a country of 1.4 billion, Western health analysts believe that number is just too low. Chinese officials say their success in large measure rests on this tracking app, an electronic big brother that sits on everyone's phone and tracks COVID cases and exposure. It's literally the key to entering buildings, taking cabs or traveling. Typical of the people we ask, this couple said, they're fine with that. Maybe so. But on top of the vast network of facial recognition cameras, it's given Chinese authorities a new super surveillance tool to monitor and meddle in more than a billion lives. Given the power and the reach of a prickly Chinese state, U.S. officials have counseled American athletes not to criticize China while they're at the games and to stay safe. Margaret? Liz Palmer, thank you. We'll be right back. 
We turn now to former FDA commissioner and Pfizer board member, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Good morning to you, doctor. Good morning. 900,000 Americans uh, have died over the last two years from COVID. That's the population of Indianapolis, greater than the population of San Francisco, Charlotte, North Carolina. Where are we now as a country in this fight? Well, look, we're still tragically in this fight. Uh, I think when you look across the country right now, you see the cases declining very quickly all across the country. In almost every state, if you look week over week, cases have declined sharply. So we're a good part of the way through this Omicron wave. You look at places like New York, New Jersey, uh, Maryland, cases are down to about 20 to 30 cases per 100,000 people per day, which is a low level. Um, that's about where we were before the Delta surge. Uh, other parts of the country are still at about 100 cases per 100,000 people per day, 140. You look at states like North Carolina, South Carolina, Kentucky right now, uh, Oklahoma, they're about at that level. So some parts of the country still are in the thick of the Omicron wave coming down, but still in the thick of it. Other parts like New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Boston, if you look at um, some of the leading indicators, have come way down. And I think mm -hmm. that they're through the worst of this particular wave of infection. And we're hearing from governors, there was a bipartisan group of them that met with President Biden just in the past few days saying they want guidelines to talk about moving from pandemic to an endemic stage here. And yet we're at 2,400 deaths a day. That doesn't feel like we're close to the end. No, it doesn't feel like that. And we're not close to the end right now, depending on how you measure that. I think that this is going to be a long struggle. This is a virus that's going to be persistent. We're going to have to take, continue to take measures to protect vulnerable people. I think what governors are agitating for is some clear guideposts that define what the on and off ramp is for this. When do we start to roll back this mitigation? And we don't have a agreed upon set of nomenclature and metrics for measuring that. If you look at CDC right now, many state authorities and public health authorities talk about 10 cases per 100,000 people per day being a metric that rates you being in sort of a low level of spread. If you look at CDC's guidance, they talk about 10 cases per 100,000 people per week. So that's 1.44 cases a day. That's a level of spread, a sufficiently low level of spread that we've never been at at any point in this pandemic. And that's where CDC de defines a low level of spread that would justify removing masks, for example, in schools. And so I think what governors are sensing is that we need to, we need to agree upon a set of metrics when we're going to start to roll back these mitigation steps uh, and give people a light at the end of the tunnel. What is that point when this stuff gets turned off. Well, you talk about clear steps and masks. The governor of Virginia, we talked about on this program, you know, lifted the, the mask mandate for schools. And he on, on January 2nd, 20, excuse me, on January 23rd, when I asked you what should be done here, you said that was too early, but in two weeks, we'd be in a place where mask mandates could be lifted. So that puts us right where we are right now. Can mask mandates be lifted in most schools? Look, I think you're going to see governors start to do that. I think we're two weeks out. We've seen prevalence come down. Connecticut, their mask mandate is, uh, expires on February 15th. I would expect that that's not going to be renewed, and schools in the state of Connecticut will very quickly lift uh, mask requirements for students. I think you're going to see the same thing in New York, New Jersey, other states where Omicron has come down, where vaccination rates are especially high. I think you're going to see states do that. Uh, and we're at a point where we can safely contemplate that. That doesn't mean that this isn't going to continue to spread. But when prevalence is low, you have a lot of people who've been infected, who have some level of immunity for a period of time, and you have high vaccination rates, we can start to lean forward and take a little bit more risk and try to at least make sure that students in schools have some semblance of normalcy for this spring term. A lot of kids haven't really known a normal school day for two years now. So we, wanted, we need to try to lean forward aggressively 
to try to restore that and reclaim it when we can. Mm -hmm. But then I'm a parent of a young child who doesn't have access to a vaccine yet. Um, I don't want to take a mask off of his face. When will he be vaccinated? I mean, the FDA said they want to reconsider their earlier guidance, and now they are looking at two doses. First week of March, do I go into a pediatrician's office and get a shot? It's possible. Look, the decision is ultimately going to reside with FDA. The briefing documents on the data that the FDA is going to review are going to be out this Friday. The agency uh, is going to have an advisory committee, a public advisory committee on February 15th. After that, I would expect that they'll make a decision on the vaccine for children ages six months to four years old. Uh, and they have a lot more data to evaluate. I think when people see that data come out, some of it will be out Friday in the briefing documents. All of it will be out in the public advisory committee meeting. I think that they'll see that the data package has evolved from when they first looked at it back in December. And what's happened over that intervening time is Omicron. Um, 11.4 million children have been infected through this, through, through this pandemic. 3.5 million of them were infected in just the month of January, and that was Omicron. And there were 1.6 million kids under the age of five infected over the course of the pandemic. So we now have a lot of experience of the kids in that trial who were vaccinated, who made it through the Omicron wave, and we'll be able to evaluate how protective that vaccine was. I know you, you used to run the FDA, but do you think the FDA made a mistake by not authorizing this back in December when they had the first chance to do so? Look, I always felt that it was important to get baseline immunity in those children. Remember, Pfizer, the company I'm on the board of, made a decision to test low doses in children ages six months to five years old because they wanted to find the lowest dose possible that provided some immune response but improved tolerability by choosing a very low dose in the children. It's a three-microgram dose compared to a 30-microgram dose in adults. You improve the tolerability of the vaccine, but the sacrifice was that the absolute efficacy of the vaccine wasn't as substantial as what you saw in 16 to 25, and that's the data they were looking at back in December. They saw that the immune response wasn't as substantial, so they wanted to wait and see how those kids did. I still believe it was important to get baseline immunity in children ahead of the Omicron wave. They chose not to do that. I think they now have an opportunity to look at a much richer data set because they have the collective experience of all the kids who were enrolled in this trial who made it through Omicron. Some got infected. Hopefully some didn't. I think that's what the data package is going to show. And I think it's going to give a much clearer picture of what the effectiveness of this vaccine is in Omicron. And then the open question is how many parents choose to take advantage of that vaccine being accessible. Um, Dr. Gottlieb, it's always good to talk to you and uh, we'll catch up with you next Sunday. Last week, we spoke with a group of parents to get their perspective on parenting during the pandemic and the prospect of soon being able to get very young children vaccinated. A few of the daycare moms and I have made a joke about like waiting in line for like a concert. <laughs> Basically, who's bringing the tent? Well, I mean, my son has had COVID. Uh, you know, he's been through through it and it was pretty rough. I, I know what else I felt like when I got the vaccine. For a three-year-old to communicate what they really are feeling and if there's a problem, can they actually do that? I, I don't think they can. That's part of the reason why we want to wait. Cam, how, how about you? How have you fared and how have your children fared during this pandemic? So my son's 13. So, you know, uh, he started at a new school right when it started. I still think he's, you know, sort of playing catch up and trying to get back to some level of normalcy. Did the vaccine make a tremendous difference in in his life or in your psychology? Absolutely, because you always want to do anything you possibly can 
to protect your child. And unfortunately, I lost my best friend who opted to not get vaccinated prior to my son being able to get vaccinated. So as soon as it was an option for him to be able to get the vaccine, he was 12 when he got it. There wasn't any hesitation on my part. Alejandro, your children are a little bit older. What was your conversation about the need to get vaccinated or not? My kids are, <clears throat> my kids really are really prudent, urging on the hypochondriac. So they got <laughs> vaccinated as soon as they were eligible. I didn't have to push them at all. If anything, they pushed me. And I mean, how did that make you feel as a parent? It made me feel safer. We were not, given their ages, I wasn't worried about them dying of COVID, but I was worried about them having the flu from hell and then having any long-term consequences of that flu from hell. Do all of you and do all of your children wear masks? Raise your hand. And they all wear masks when they go to school. Are any of you, do any of you hope that they get to take off that mask soon? Or is it just normal now? My middle child is going to college. Mm-hmm. And they, at colleges, they really have a nasty mental health crisis. It's not made up. And the COVID restrictions have a lot to do with that. It's masking, the social distancing, the asking for the having to get tested twice a week, and so on and so forth. It's really taxing, and it's really affecting their social lives. It's driving some of them pretty crazy, I guess. Allison, I want you to jump in here because I think you've got a pretty interesting point of view. You are actually a pediatrician. Are you concerned about uh, development with young children, given all the restrictions we're living under? Do you, do you think that's a valid worry from parents? I do, especially for our teenage children. As far as the little ones go, I am not quite so concerned because these little ones are so resilient. So I think it's less of a concern than the big kids. But um, yeah, I think it's it's definitely an, an issue. I see it in my own daughter with, she's in first grade and in kindergarten, she was wearing a mask all year and it wasn't an issue. And at the beginning of this year, they didn't have them wearing masks. And she was thrilled, of course. And then with the upsurge and the new variant, they had them return to masks. And she just cried. She was devastated. Um, So it really brought it kind of in more perspective to me that, I mean, this, this is hard for them. It affects them so much more than we realize sometimes. When you hear the term children are resilient, do you think that's a positive way of characterizing things or does it anger you a little bit? It's not that I don't think children are resilient. Um, I just think sometimes there's such a focus on them being resilient and having grit that they don't get a chance to like actually feel their emotions because they're too busy shoving them down to show grit and resilience. Um, The very young, they don't have a lot of memories, but they do have, they, they, there are subconscious things that stick with them. They're going to need to feel their feelings and mm-hmm. we're going to need to give them the grace to do so. That's a really, I think, important observation. Um, Cam, what's your feeling on this? We have a generation of youth, you know, that are missing opportunities and experiences that they're never going to be able to have again. Show of hands, who thinks 
that we can kind of make up for lost time? No one. Who thinks we can repair whatever impact there has been to our children? Caleb, you're hopeful here. Yeah, I am, because with my <clears throat> with my three-year-old, this is a new thing that, that none of us have ever had to go through, but I think this is just normative for them moving forward, so they won't know that it's not like the same as what we had. Sydney, I know your children have experienced things with kind of a stop-start. How has that impacted them? They were 12 and 14. That's a really crucial time. So for my daughter, who is a little bit more quiet anyway, it, we had to make sure she came out of her room. And we could kind of see her closing down, tensing up. And, you know, so we could go into how can we help her mode. My son is a little bit more happy-go-lucky. And so he seemed to be taking everything in stride until it was clear he wasn't. Like he was a 12-year-old who had like a three-year-old meltdown one day. He just ran out of the house yelling, you know, it, and it was, a you know, we were worried. And, and Cam, I know um, you had some difficulty seeing that, what the impact was of isolation on your son. A couple months into it, he was just breaking down occasionally. And he finally wrote me a letter and said that he was concerned about when I wasn't going to be around, which was shocking. And because you see all this like death and gloom all around you. It, it, it's been much better now that he's back at school, but that first six to nine months, it definitely affected him emotionally. That must've been really hard to hear as a parent. Oh, absolutely. Do all of you feel like your emotional health has been impacted by COVID? Show of hands. All of you do. Do you think that impacts your ability to parent? The CDC kept saying that's that's how you protect your child is you make sure everybody around them is vaxxed and boosted because neither of my kids' grandmothers will get vaccinated. Um, so they haven't seen her since she was a year old. It was a, it, it was a hard conversation to have with my own mother, I must say. And then there came Omicron, and it didn't seem to matter that we were vaccinated and boosted. It was coming for you anyway. And so now that's part of the paranoia almost right now. Yes, I'm going to get Marcy vaccinated as soon as possible, but now I don't think of the vaccine as the way out anymore. A painful conversation, um, but we hope to have a conversation with H.R. McMaster, who's finally up on the line in a moment. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. For 149 years, ADT has made the security of their customers a top priority so you can have peace of mind that your home is protected. Now ADT professionally installs Google Nest products to help keep your home safe and smart. 
you'll be able to check in on your home and manage your security system from virtually anywhere. Plus, with Nest Cams and the Nest Doorbell, you can get intelligent alerts, so you'll always receive notifications on what matters most. When the most trusted name in home security adds the intelligence of Google, you've got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1-800-ADT-ASAP. Google Nest Cam and Nest Doorbell are trademarks of Google LLC. ADT, brilliantly safe. We go now to former National Security Advisor, retired General H.R. McMaster, who is with us from Palo Alto, California. Good morning to you, and I understand you can hear me now. So that's good. I want to. <laughs> good morning, Margaret. It's great to be with you. Thanks for your perseverance. Yeah. Well, let's pick up on that question I put to you. Uh, do you agree with the former Vice President Mike Pence that Donald Trump was wrong in what he claims about the 2020 election? Absolutely. And all Americans should agree with Vice President Pence. And, you know, it's time, Margaret, I think, to demand more from our political leaders, demand that they stop compromising confidence in our democratic principles and institutions and processes to score partisan political points. And as you know, this happens across both political parties, and it's just time to stop. And you, do you believe January 6th was in any way legitimate political discourse? No, it was, it was illegitimate political discourse because it was an assault on the first branch of government. And so I think it's really important for us to, to come together now, Margaret. And, you know, I mean, I really think it is possible to improve the transparency and the security of our elections while ensuring that every eligible vote, voter gets to vote. So I think what we need to do is stop posturing across the, these political parties and begin conversations with what we can agree on. I mean, your, your show has been great. I got to listen to the whole thing <laughs> to be here at the end. But, it, but it's pretty clear that we are emerging from a number of traumas of the past couple of years. And it's time for Americans to come together and to restore our confidence in who we are as a people and in our democratic principles and institutions and processes. Mm -hmm. And of course, Russia preys on our weaknesses and divisions and tries to portray democracy as weak. But, you know, Margaret, I, I believe that totalitarianism is, is fragile and weak and democracies are resilient and we can work together and, sh and come out of these traumas stronger. Thank you for your clarity on those questions. Um, General, uh, the Trump administration back in 2018 was the first to give lethal aid to Ukraine, those anti-tank uh, systems. It didn't deter Vladimir Putin from what appears to be a plan to invade. Why not? Well, it, it, who knows what it deterred, Mark? It's hard, to, to, it's hard to prove a negative. Of course, Russia will push, Putin will push until he meets strong resistance. And so what we really need and what you're starting to see, I think, is deterrence by denial convincing Putin that he can no longer accomplish his objectives through the use of force. And, and so if, he, if, he, if his objective is to divide NATO, what he needs to see is a NATO who comes together uh, with, with a stronger and higher degree of unity. If he, wants to, uh, if he wants to weaken Ukraine and keep it under its thumb, he's going to see, obviously, a rise of nationalist sentiment in, in Ukraine. And the Ukrainians doing everything they can to strengthen themselves, not only militarily, but also economically. And what I'd like to do is see the whole world amplify the Ukrainians' voices and actually support them militarily, but also economically as well. And, you know, Margaret, I think what you see uh, this past week, some anxiety on the part of Ukrainian leaders, because as Russia continues to prepare for what looks like a renewed massive offensive against Ukraine, it's important to remember, they already invaded Ukraine. Right. 7,000 Ukrainians have already died as a result. So I think we need to help U Ukraine economically 
as well as, as well as threaten Russia with economic consequences. What can we do to help strengthen Ukraine in the face of this crisis? Well, what do you think uh, is the impact then of this growing alliance between Russia and China? And, you know, is, is China going to be emboldened by what happens next in Europe? I think possibly, depending on how we respond. And, and of course, China already is more and more aggressive in terms of extending and tightening its exclusive grip on power internally. You've seen how they've gone uh, across uh, sectors of their economy, continuing the genocidal campaign in Xinjiang, extinguishing human freedom uh, in, in Hong Kong, persecuting journalists and anybody who might criticize the Chinese government during the Olympics have been intimidated or, or imprisoned. And then, of course, externally as well, Margaret, and we've seen them bludgeon Indian soldiers to death on the Himalayan frontier, you know, weaponizing these islands on the South China Sea. Now they're painting some of their naval ships Coast Guard colors uh, so they can claim mm -hmm. really the, the biggest land grab in history in the South China Sea. And then, of course, Taiwan is probably the most dangerous flashpoint, and we've seen how aggressive they've been there as well. So it's really important, I think, for the free world to come together to strengthen, again, our confidence and to communicate to these totalitarian regimes that they can't accomplish their objectives mm -hmm. uh, at our expense. H.R. McMaster, I have much more to talk to you about on China. I'm going to have to leave it right there for this moment, though. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Senator Marco Rubio, Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyemo, former National Security Advisor General H.R. McMaster, and former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation's also on our digital network, CBSN, at 12 p.m. and 4 p.m. Eastern Time every Sunday. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. John Stewart here. Unbelievably exciting news. My new podcast, The Weekly Show. We're going to be talking about the uh, election, economics, ingredient to bread ratio on sandwiches. Listen to The Weekly Show with John Stewart wherever you get your podcasts. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. 
Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital edition wherever you get your books.